Hey everyone, before we even begin this episode, I want to give a quick thanks to one of our sponsors that made this podcast possible. We all could use a little more love. The Mind Love Podcast is the easiest way to give your mind a little love each week. It's a modern approach to mindfulness that's all about bringing more intention to your life and becoming a better version of you. The host, Melissa Monte, has a new guest each week to explore bold topics with honesty, realness, and an open mind. Her vulnerability and openness is totally unique from other shows, so I'd actually recommend that you check it out. Our episode today features Anla Chang, founder and CEO of SubChina, the premier digital news platform about China which aims to inform and educate an English-speaking audience. What struck me about Anla is that she has such an incredible poise and presence. I think it's certainly been acquired from much wisdom in both finance and journalism fields. Today we really dig into the importance of portraying China genuinely through the media, what it means to break through the bamboo ceiling, and how resilience and courage are key to a sustainable career. I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta. Anla Chang. Hi, Anla. This is Juliana. And what a treat it is to be able to get you on the show. I'm glad we can connect. Are you there now? Can you hear me? I, I can hear you. Great. Great. We have an opportunity to dive right in. As I mentioned, I am a huge fan of SubChina. I think over the years, I've really relied on the articles and content that's been put out by that media source. And I'm really excited to get to speak and meet with the the mind behind a lot of the the ideas and the content. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Anla. No, thank you, Juliana, for expressing such interest. I'm really uh, delighted and honored to be able to do this for you. I think really where I'd like to start is just could you tell our listeners a little bit more about the path to where you are today and how SubChina came to be? Sure. So uh, SubChina's birth was a very natural uh, development. Uh, throughout my career, and my career basically has been focused on investing in China and Asia, first Asia, but then eventually the Chinese market opened and matured, I exclusively focused on China. And during those years, I would uh, every morning get up 5, 6 a.m. and plow through many of the newspapers. Uh, in our generation, we still have a lot. We, we are still accustomed to looking at newspapers. So in the morning, I would just shuffle through, you know, the FT, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and then look online for Bloomberg and uh, go through maybe three to five, six, seven sources on China. And that took a lot of time. And so over the years, when I decided that uh, it would make more sense if we had one central place that could report all the news from my sources. Uh, that was the original genesis. Uh, however, without going elaborate and uh, going into great detail, uh, when I had my private equity firm, which invested in China, my main partners, uh, one uh, had uh, fallen off a mountain. I think it was Himalayas uh, because it was a huge avalanche. Mm. Another partner was quite mortally ill. Uh, he then uh, recovered, but during that time, two of my four partners were very, very sick. And so that gave me uh, a time to sort of, uh, everything came to a pause, to a halt for about three months. And during that time, uh, I thought, as a hobby, I'll start this. And uh, uh, through my friends, I was introduced to uh, 
the uh, founder, the individual who founded the digital media at New York Times. And that's how um, SubChina was born. That's really interesting. Now, over the years, there's been many different big events that have happened. How do you stay current with the times and how do you think SubChina has evolved? Have there been certain directions that you've wanted to head in and realize that it might have not been the right direction to go in? No, I feel very, very fortunate because when we started out, we started out with a different editor. And then uh, a year later, we were, uh, during that time, we were introduced through that first editor-in-chief to uh, Kaiser and Jeremy, who just from a pure coincidence, they were ready to leave China. And the two of them together had lived in China, you know, 20 years each, 40 years in total. And uh, they were ready to leave China for various reasons. Their children were getting old enough. They wanted an American education. They felt that they were too the censorship issue was getting even quite stringent and they wanted to leave China. So um, it was perfect timing, and they never questioned us of China for one second. They wanted to be part of it, and their mission and my mission aligned perfectly, and that is they wanted to teach the world about China. They wanted to advance U.S.-China relations, and they wanted to take a very neutral, balanced stance on China without being you know, sort of it's hackneyed phrase, but we didn't want to be neither a panda hugger nor a dragon slayer. Mm. And it was very important for all three of us that we able to be able to depict China from a, a many, many perspectives, a kaleidoscopic view on China. And uh, from day one, we were in agreement. And so uh, we kind of clicked, and it's been a happy marriage. They're fantastic. They're professional. We've got the most listened to a uh, podcast on China now, uh, Seneca, which is part of SubChina, uh, focuses on podcasts, as you know, and I feel very blessed that we've uh, gotten to know each other. I think that's actually one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot being in China is uh, how the Western media actually picks up the stories that they do, and I was curious if you had any insight, because sometimes I'll be scrolling through my social media, reading different uh, Western media outlets, and the articles that they pick up, whether that be around popular culture, around business, or around trade, is actually sometimes not what a lot of the people in China are talking about. And how do, the, how do these articles get picked up, and why do you think certain topics become as um, viral and prolific as they do? Right. Are you talking about uh, articles picked up by the major news sources, such as Washington Post or Wall Street Journal, New York Times, FT, is that what you're talking about, or why we at SubChina are picking up these articles? I'd actually first like to, yeah, I'd actually first like to talk a little bit about your Wall Street Journals and your Financial Times and your Washington (laughs) Post, and then understand how SubChina places itself in that market to give a more genuine voice. Sure. Well, um, the first thing that we all know is that most of these are banned in China. And as you well know, most of these journalists who may have been in China have now either moved out of China or moved to Hong Kong. And so the view on China tends to be very jaded, one-sided, and uh, an inaccurate uh, uh, depiction of China. So that's that's something that we all realize. And as you know, when you read these uh, news sources, whether it's from the U.K. or the U.S., they tend to be very, very negative on China. And so it's a one side. But it's not 
uh, uh, 360 degree. It doesn't really show China from a 360 degree angle. So uh, the American readers are really missing out a lot on what are uh, the, the true thoughts and what's happening in China. So what we try to do at SubChina is, yes, a lot of times those are the better articles. They're, they, pick, they write more beautifully. It, it, there's certain cadence, little vocabulary, the language. It's much easier to read. Uh, but we also use a lot of other sources. You know, we source over 350 sources from around the world. So I keep telling our editors, make sure that we not only feature the Western media, but we feature local media, and especially now with Belt and Road happening, 69 countries, uh, $1 trillion project, almost every country has something to say about China. So let's make sure we get Vietnam and you know Thailand and Cambodia and let's or even maybe Italy or Russia. Well, let's get their views on China as well, and uh, they try to do that. You know, I'm very pleased. I I, I personally would like to have more uh, articles uh, featured from other sources, but uh, my editors tell me that when it comes to top news, uh, the Western media covers it the best. So we tend to feature. Uh, those articles a little more, but I notice that every day there are uh, articles written from other countries, other uh, news sources that perhaps the average Americans have never heard of. Right. And you said that, you know, you want to bring in unique and genuine voices. How do you and SubChina continue to find these high caliber writers that are able to get those really true insights onto what's happening? Well, that that's the secret sauce of our editors <laughs> who a- <laughs> aggregate from all these sources, and they're able to pick, select, and um, put put together, and then write explainers on what these people are saying. So that you know that I have to give it uh, a huge compliment to our editor in chief, Jeremy Goldcorn, uh, who truly understands what's going on in China. And then our associate editors have been also superb. They've been with us two years from the start, and uh, they're young, they're millennials, but they've been, they're all China, uh, they've dedicated their studies uh, on China, and they've been terrific. So I think that combination, and, and we operate over Slack, and so they're constantly talking to each other all day long. And, uh, you know, Jeremy and Kaiser have huge um, network uh, relationships in China, so they also are pretty plugged in into what's going on despite the fact that now they've left China uh, in over two years. But they do go back often, as you know. Right. And you bring up Jeremy and Kaiser. They um, are involved in the Seneca podcast, I believe, for six years before they joined Sub China. Incredible work that they... Uh, eight, 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 eight years eight, before eight, China. Eight, that must yeah. have been an old mm-hmm. article I was looking at. Right. They actually uh, had been working with Seneca before coming to Sub China, and... It seems that the the podcast uh, demographic of people that really like podcasts and look to it in America, you usually have young, maybe even urban elite. When I talk to people in China, podcasts are less popular. Now, can you either refute that that statement or maybe give some insight into why you maybe think audio forms of consuming media in China are not yet as popular? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, about uh, uh, we have a larger listener base in China. We really appeal to the expat community. So we have a huge following in China and Hong Kong as well. 
So overall, and this includes Subchina and Seneca, 60% of our uh, listeners, viewers, and readers are from the United States, about 30% from China and Hong Kong, and the rest are from Australia, Singapore, uh, uh, New Zealand, Taiwan, uh, Canada, and London. And we're trying to we're now incre- we're trying to really penetrate into the uh, European countries and any other country that uses English, but that's pretty much universally. Many most countries have a certain uh, group of elite people who really speak English. So we're hoping to penetrate uh, into other areas as well. But in terms of um, why podcast is not as popular, well, first of all, it's in English. And uh, secondly, I think the Chinese, you know, they use Weixing, WeChat, as you know. For sure. And uh, they do listen. But I think, yeah, I think they, they listen to things that are uh, shorter. But uh, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if what you're saying is correct, because in China, they have a lot of uh, uh, audio programs that might be actually a little bit shorter. But they, it's quite popular. And uh, they have a lot of activities that are sort of inter interactive so you pay to listen they have a lot of videos that they're interested in on their uh chat so i'm not sure if i totally agree that the podcasts are not as uh, uh popular in china they just might be shorter they may, may not be the one hour right i think i'm thinking about podcasts in the traditional form so you have your half hour 45 minute whether it be informative or an interview and it's a it's usually on some sort of podcast hosting site but i do i think you're hitting on something here where the way that media is consumed you think about weibo or you think about shorter forms of media it's different than sitting down with a podcast during your commute and when I talk to, and maybe it's the word that I'm using, I, I'm talking about um, and when I speak to my colleagues or I speak to friends in China, uh, they're very unfamiliar with the, the concept of, of podcasts, and it's just not the way that they prefer to, to consume audio media. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't live there. I live in the United States, as you know, so I just know that it's very, very popular here. And uh, I'm delighted that we're able to really disseminate uh, true color on China uh, by interviewing really a huge uh, section, various diverse uh, industries and professionals, you know, whether they're journalists, politicians, business people, uh, academicians, think tank people. I'm I'm just delighted. Uh, You may have heard the last a podcast which I thought was terrific was uh, mm. a leading lady on NSA, National Security, and she's been there for I think 18 years, following China, and it's it's amazing. I had no idea the breadth of knowledge and the depth of knowledge she had. So uh, Kaiser and Jeremy have been terrific to really share uh, professionals that are in really obscure China, uh, spaces that involve China, and to be able to really share it with the audience. So. Speaking speaking of new spaces, I think you have hinted that the next new frontier for SubChina could be virtual reality. Could you maybe give us a little bit more yeah. of a hint to that? Sure. Yeah, so I did think of that about a year ago, and we had actually visited HTC to see if there could be some collaboration. But as you know, not only HTC, but Google and uh, Apple, they've all come to the realization that uh, it's one thing to have the technology, it's another to distribute and execute and have mass appeal, and we're not there yet. So it's it's taking a longer than I had expected, and I think uh, much longer than the industry expected. We do have uh, 
360 capability, and we've actually put it on our site. Uh, our users have not really uh, taken onto it that much, so I didn't want to put uh, extra dollars on this. So we're sort of plotting slowly and not moving ahead. So I would say when we first, uh, how you picked it up, I'm not sure, but when we first thought of it, I thought it's going to be a huge thing, and it has not turned out to be that way. So uh, right now we're looking at AI, and I'm not sure if it'll be the same thing as uh, VR, maybe a trendy uh, thing that people want to latch on to and whether there'll be a, uh, enough benefit uh, cost benefit to allow us to do that. I'm not sure yet, but definitely these are two trends that uh, are universal. So we need to look at it as well. Right. And as you know, in China, as you know, in China, Total has been so successful, and uh, so that's something that we need to look at it seriously. I think that's a really fair point for listeners that aren't familiar with Totio. They analyze content and users' interaction with it to generate a customized platform. I think it's going to be very interesting to see how China can possibly utilize and capitalize on these new technologies like AI and machine learning to really optimize for ideal experiences. Right. I think I'd actually like to spend a little bit more time speaking about your experience and how that's influenced the way that you've run SupChina and other endeavors that you've had in your life. I really want to focus first on your experience in private equity before going to SupChina. Do you ever find that lessons that you've learned um, in the finance industry have helped inform your decision-making working in news and media? Mm-hmm. Well, my um, exposure into the finance industry it has been quite diverse because I started out as an analyst, and then I became a portfolio manager. Then I became a fund-to-funds manager in hedge funds, and then I moved on to uh, starting my private equity. So it's been quite diverse, and each uh, transition uh, brought a, brought in uh, new skills that I had to learn and uh, uh hone and develop and uh, nurture. So, uh, it's, it's, you know, when one talks about finance, it's really such a huge industry with so many aspects and diverse skill sets. And so every uh, skill set, I, I must say that they're not directly applicable, but from a business standpoint, it's applicable because one needs to understand budget, one needs to understand finances to run a business, and one needs to uh, understand marketing and managing people. And, of course, when it comes to marketing now, you have all the social media and all these various platforms and how do you do PR and how do you uh, get sponsors and advertisers. So I think it's just a cumulative thing. You know, it's definitely not directly applicable. I never studied media in school, uh, but I think you just draw on your experiences and apply wherever it's applicable. So definitely it's been helpful. Uh, it's, this is sort of like a roundabout way to say, uh, yes, uh, many experiences from the past that I can apply, but there's been a lot of learning on the job as well. Like what sorts of learning on the job? Well, for instance, I know nothing about digital technology. So even now, 
it's a mystery to me as to how things happen. <laughs> but uh, we kind of learn along the way. And, you know, social media is something that I personally don't even engage in. Mm-hmm. But I realize the importance of social media. You know, we have a Twitter page, Facebook page, LinkedIn, Reddit, of course, Instagram, and we have WeChat as well. It's very important in this day and age, especially because 60% of our readers are millennials. So we need to be able to uh, deliver it uh, in the way that they're interested in. So these are all new uh, areas that I know nothing about and still don't know much about, but you learn on the job, and uh, that's what makes life interesting. Okay, so it seems that you are steadfast in your commitment to continuous exploration and learning. What are new things that you're focused on learning right now? Well, I'm really quite busy uh, trying to nurture and develop uh, SubChina into becoming a thriving entity that's profitable, Mm. that's sustainable, and uh, that reaches as uh, many people as we can. Currently, we're getting close to 3 million readers and viewers. So I think for an entity that's been launched a little over two years ago, that's not bad. But when I think of the importance of U.S.-China relations, the importance of understanding China, and because you know the average school in the United States maybe spends somewhere between two weeks to three months on China, Chinese history, the average American knows very little about China. And so I find that uh, it's an urgent task to make sure that China... Uh, understanding on China, the education in China uh, becomes a very vital and perhaps even important enough as taking a vitamin every day. One needs to understand what's going on in China. And as you know, Juliana, when you're in China, the average Chinese know a lot about the United States. And I'd love to see the average American and the uh, average person around the world understand China the way the Chinese do about the world. So, um, it's, it's, it's an urgent task as far as I'm concerned. Where do you think the biggest knowledge gap is for Americans? Uh, I, that could be different for American students versus American journalists versus American business people. But if you were to generalize, this is where the biggest gap is in terms of understanding China. What do you think it is? Well, it's, it's the gap is not uh, Americans not understanding China. The gap is Americans don't understand the world because it's hmm. been so self-sufficient. And so uh, it's not that America is an isolationist. It's just geographically, uh, America's been very fortunate and there it's an, it has, didn't, hasn't had a need to depend on other countries. So it has been self-sufficient. But now it's beginning to wake up because uh, China is uh, taking on the race. And uh, as you're well familiar with uh, the Thucydides Trap, a book written by Alison Graham. Great book. uh, Talks about a rising power. Yeah, rising power, taking over an incumbent power. And I think that's what Trump is all about. You know, he's shaken by the fact that China may become a, a leader, a stronger power than the United States. And so it's so important that we all understand what's happening and why the U.S. is reacting the way it is. And uh, I feel that uh, it's a mission that we have and uh, a very worthwhile mission. And I'm looking forward to the day that we'll have 10, 20, 30 million listeners and viewers on SubChina. 
Mm. I'm getting the sense that it's less of a specific topic that may be a part of the gap, and it's more of an intangible sense of being able to actually grasp the culture and the people and a feel that with time and with reading and with understanding, that comes naturally. Mm-hmm. I think there's a sense of fear that's instilled by the journalists here. If you'll look back on the last five years, the journalists here have uh, typically focused a lot on South China Sea, on the militarization of China, of China taking over. You know, Made in China 2025 is all based on fear. And so I think there needs to be a lot of understanding that perhaps that's not the only thing that's going on in China. There are many, many other things. You know, when you look at pop culture and what really resonates with the average person, what's going on in their lives, and the fact that there's still 200 million people in China who are very, very poor, uh, and that they rank in terms of GDP per capita. Uh, you know, the U.S. is close to 60,000, and in China it's a little less than 10,000, or maybe they're just about to break that bamboo ceiling, as they call it. So there's a huge gap. Um, if you ask the average American, they think all Chinese are rich. That's not true at all, as you know. For sure. I mean, there's a lot of socioeconomic disparity that's not immediately apparent. China's not as homogenous as some may think it is. Right. So I, th- and I, I think what you're also also hitting on is that sometimes American journalists will take things that are very closely related to American values and then overlay it on very specific pinpointed stories in China, almost cherry picking. I think about um, the Alibaba story about sexism in the workplace, taking a very strong American value that um, is being not followed in a sense in China as a way to instill the, the difference between the cultures and the countries. This is this whole color of the lens. Uh, they only, the American journalists only know what they know, and that's because they don't go to China that often. And that's one of the reasons why uh, I've been supporting uh, this program, first started by Committee 100 and now at Asia Society, and that is sending uh, journalists to China. Um, recently, I've attended a function with American journalists who are considered, quote-unquote, specialists on China, and uh, amongst the maybe five or six that were on stage, they, go to, they went to China maybe once in three years, and many of them hadn't, haven't even gone there, and yet they consider themselves specialists on China. So I was appalled and uh, really shocked that they could consider themselves specialists. But then again, that's, you know, that's the best that we have. So that's the lens that they, they view China through what they understand. So I'm not blaming that uh, for them for saying what they do because you only know what you know, and they don't know that there's so much more going on in China. And you're right, you know, they tend to uh, overfocus on Alibaba and Tencent, and you know, now it's the hashtag Me Too, etc. But um, mm-hmm. these are interesting issues that Americans like to listen to because they can relate to it. So again, I don't blame them for focusing on that. What SubChina tries to do is to really broaden that lens and to be able to provide a really a kaleidoscopic view on China. Hmm. A kaleidoscopic view, that certainly includes the voices of women. 
But my impression is that with the emergence of the new cohort of professional women, China's tackling some of these issues differently than in America. How do you think that Chinese women are finding and sharing their voice? Uh, there is great interest from our readers, and actually uh, about 60 to 65% of our readers are men. And I've been trying to get more women to read and uh, stay with us. Oh, that's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, my uh, biggest regret, in a way, the best thing that Mao did, I think, is to really make sure that the women had held up the sky, half the sky. Uh, but now, uh, since uh, this huge explosion of billionaires, these rich men have opted to sort of, how shall I say, uh, uh, no, I, I, I'm not sure how I can say it, politically correctly, but uh, women, uh, you know, prostitution has come back, and uh, while there are more women billionaires in China than any other country, so there are huge, uh, many, many uh, startups that are started up by women and many entrepreneurs who are women, uh, so that's terrific, but at the same time, uh, there's been sort of a a backward step in terms of how especially these successful, uh, financially successful men view women. Uh, So there there needs to be more education on the men's part in China to understand and accept and to, you know, revere and honor women the way they may have in the past. In other words, equal pay, equal everything else, because I understand there is a huge disparity there in in terms of remuneration, remuneration as well. So it's sort of Twofold. One is that they, China does have the largest number of female billionaires, and there are more startups and entrepreneurs that are women. In tech, there are many more tech entrepreneurs in China that are women than in Silicon Valley. But um, at the same time, you do have a rise of um, uh, you know, pornography, and which the government now is trying to um, expunge, uh, and uh, rise in prostitution, etc. So how do you reconcile these two really opposite topics? Women are rising to the C-suite and the increased objectification of women. Do you think that just the general populace has been turning a blind eye? Or do you think it has to do with the lack of education? It, it just seems like there's not that much talk in a comprehensive way. I think it's lack of education and awareness. And, you know, women have to stand up for oneself, and women can stand up for themselves once they're educated as well, and they hold power in, in the workforce. And uh, um, it, it will happen eventually. And I think it might have been easier when uh, mothers could take care of the women's children, you know, when they got married and they have children. And right. now so many of them, with the migrant workforce, you know, these poor children have been really, uh, they're, they're sort of the equivalent of the latchkey child. Uh, situation in the United States. Uh, So uh, that's been very sad as far as I'm concerned. But uh, there will be a balancing force. I think a lot of the, uh, I see that there's a lot of women um, entities and groups that have been formed. As you know, SubChina just held a women's conference last May, several months ago. And uh, we invited a number of handful of groups to talk about women's group in China. And I'm always uh, very heartened to find that, that there is a there is a movement to to help women. 
band together to try to uh, encourage each other to form groups, whether for career reasons or for personal reasons. So I think there's a movement, and I think that's a good thing. Right. I commend SubChina so much for getting together all these incredible women that have had a focus and insights on China to speak. And I was wondering if you could share from your personal perspective in May, were there any really great sound bites or perspectives that you got from many of the various panels on luxury and basic industry and tech? And I think there's also one on business. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I want to start out by saying, you know, we all know, because there's been enough research done, that an edu- educated women create uh, a more civilized society because their boys, the boys that they have, grow up to be much more uh, understanding the value of women. So it's important that we try to educate as many women as we can, uh, and that uh, that would be that's really a sort of part of the equation to a more peaceful and civilized society. So going back to the women's uh, conference for SubChina in May, I think in my mind it's just you know when I. Uh, have this platform to feature these incredible women who run incredible companies. It's a validation in my mind that women can do it, that women are just as smart, if not smarter, than men. And in fact, there are studies done in the United States by, by various groups that indicate that if you have enough corporate board members, uh, 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 if you have enough women on corporate board members, I think more than two or three, you know, out of maybe somewhere between 10 to 20, almost in every case, the uh, ROI, ROE, ROA, return on equity, return on income, return on assets for the companies are better. So companies in general, you can deduce by saying that companies are healthier and more profitable when you have more women on their board and also women in C-suite executive spots. So that's also a terrific um, research study, and I think the the study was conducted, you know, over I think somewhere between twenty to fifty thousand companies. So and over years, so that's a validation that uh, women are just as smart, if not smarter, than men, and capable. And also the value of diversity and viewpoint. Having these board levels with both men and women just provides a different level of diverse perspectives that can, mm-hmm. I think, I think enhance decision-making and prevent groupthink and provide sound strategic directions. So I... Without a question. I definitely agree with that. And I think... Uh, You bring up a point of women supporting other women. I'm actually just curious more about your personal experiences um, in the professional world. If there's ever been a piece of advice that someone has given you that has really stuck with you and you've recently provided to someone else. Well, uh, I get uh, all kinds of great advice here and there, but as of yesterday, I was reminded... um, that, uh, uh, let me just see if I can quote it right, uh, money lost, nothing lost, courage lost, all lost. So it's, it's a, a very brief proverb or statement, but courage is what is required to uh, make sure that your personal passion and goals get actualized by making sure that you keep trying, you don't give up, and uh, 
uh, many times, especially for startups, you know, when you feel like you're losing money, uh, you feel like you're a failure, you know, you have to remind yourself that it's money lost is nothing compared to losing your courage. How have you recovered from almost nearly losing courage? I'm assuming that uh, seeing the persistence and incredible growth of SubChina that you've not lost all courage, but I'm assuming also that there have been some moments where recovery is necessary. Well, I think uh, that's one of the benefits of aging, and that is that uh, I've learned that resilience is key in uh, sustainability. One one never can have enough courage, but that's something that uh, I've been able to work work through over the years. So I'm very persistent and to make sure that I have courage, a lot of courage. So it's not something that I lack. And I'm pleased to say that I can, you know, there's never enough courage, but uh, there's no shortage of it in my life. I think that that is a really great note to end on. Uh, courage is so important, persistence and resilience in order to continue to push forward, especially media covering China, I'm assuming has its many different obstacles and barriers that you and SubChina will continue to tackle. Uh, It's been really a pleasure to just hear your thoughts about how SubChina is covering China, how journalism in China and America vary, and there's definitely ways to bridge that gap, as well as how, how, in your personal experiences, you've uh, noticed feminism and women taking hold of bringing their voice to, to different audiences. So I've really appreciated this opportunity. Well, thank you so much, Juliana. I must say, though, just in the last few weeks, we were uh, advised that we were banned in China now. Our website's been shut down. Our... Um, uh, app has been shut down, but uh, uh, we've gotten a lot of tweets from uh, many renowned uh, ambassadors and uh, think tank people, journalists, writers, who've said that this is only a validation that we have arrived and that uh, we've been recognized. So <laughs> it's uh, while we're very sad, while we're very sad that we're banned in China, we can. Get our WeChat. There's a SubChina WeChat page, which is a convert, uh, a bridged version of our daily and weekly um, news. And definitely, you can still get new, the newsletter through VPN. So, those of you who are in China and are listening, I hope you will continue to do that if you haven't already. Right. I would almost wear that as a badge of honor. It's like you have been yeah. recognized. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's great. So, Juliana, this has been a pleasure, and uh, I hope our cross again soon and i hope they do too okay terrific thank you so much thank you anla and that's a wrap for today i always love hearing from listeners so questions comments general musings can all be directed towards ta.4.ta.china at gmail.com until next time i'm juliana batista and this is ta for ta